While the debate rages on in Washington, D.C. over immigration and asylum seekers from south of the border, the issue is real for a mother of four children who has a fascinating sojourn into America and back to Guatemala. The human element of asylum seeking on this edition of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Very pleased today to be joined by Jillian Friedman from the Deseret News. Jillian, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. You have a uh, story that has just come out at the Deseret News that is, to me, one of the most fascinating journeys, uh, not only for the the subject of the piece, but your journey in this was a, a little bit interesting as well, uh, on a topic that's that's very hot at the moment here in the United States, that of asylum seekers. Uh, we've had a lot of banter between the Republicans and Democrats in the White House in terms of you know what asylum seekers are, who they are, what they do, but you actually dug in and did a deep dive on someone who's actually lived it and what that looks like. So give us first just kind of the baseline of the story. How did this come about? Uh, what was the experience? So this idea started, um, and it was it was the idea of Laura Seitz, who's a photographer at the Deseret News, and she wanted to go down to Guatemala uh, to visit Maria Santiago. And Maria was deported from Utah last year on Christmas Day. She had been in the United States for 14 years, um, and she had originally crossed the border into the United States fleeing uh, violence in Guatemala uh, in 2004. Uh, and then she was deported ultimately 14 years later. And we wanted to go down to see uh, what her life was like after her deportation uh, and be with her uh, for a wrenching choice she was about to make. So I know that wasn't an easy choice even to send you down there. Give us a little bit of the, what, what are the conditions like on the ground? What did, uh, what happened behind the scenes at the Deseret News in terms of even choosing to pursue this uh, this conversation? Absolutely. So um, before a newspaper sends a reporter anywhere, there's a lot of groundwork to be done. Uh, And this one was particularly challenging because uh, Guatemala is not as safe as it was even a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, we've been talking a lot about asylum seekers coming from Central America, and a lot of them are coming from Guatemala. And that's because there is a lot of gang violence, uh, drug-related violence happening there now. So we were concerned about whether or not it would even be a safe place to go. Now, this is where Maria, this woman who lived in Utah for 14 years, is actually living every day. And we were actually um, hesitant about even sending to reporters there for for the purposes of our safety. So we had to do a lot of groundwork. I reached out to the New York Times to see who was the person they use when they go down there. Mm-hmm. Journalists always have someone called a fixer. Mm-hmm. That's someone who's sort of a cultural guide, a security guard, a sort of a, a translator. Yeah. Um, and they're there to look out for your safety and to help you sort of understand the culture that you're going into. Um, so we found a great guy named Pedro, who is actually Guatemalan, but raised in Britain and, and now an immigration lawyer. Mm. And he was fantastic and really helped us understand that while it is not the safest place to go, especially when you're like me and you have red hair, red hair. and you're very <laughs> conspicuous, he told me wear a hat. And I said, I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to make a huge difference in terms of uh, helping me blend in. Um, you know, he said we have to be cautious and we have to take precautions and obviously not um, be flashy about 
our equipment, but it's hard when you're down there with, you know, a bunch of photography equipment. Um, so we decided it was worth it because we thought the story was really powerful and we thought we could do enough to ensure our safety that it would, it would be worth going down. Great. So let's let's dive into the story. Uh, you, you've teed up a few of those things in terms of the fact that she lived here for 14 years. Uh, let's go back to the beginning, though. What was it that caused Maria uh, to flee Guatemala and to seek asylum in the first place? Yeah, so Maria had a very difficult upbringing in general. Uh, she grew up during the Guatemalan Civil War. She was abandoned by her parents. Uh, she can't even remember who her parents are. She spent uh, her childhood in an abusive foster home, being sexually abused by her foster brothers. She ran away at age nine, slept on cardboard in the cardboard in the streets of Guatemala City for a while. She kind of pulled herself up by her bootstraps and found a job. And things were just sort of getting going for her. She'd finally found an apartment. She'd found a job at a clothing factory. She was feeling a little more settled in her life. She was a teenager. And then she had an apartment across the street from a food market. And one day she's sitting in her house and out her window, she sees a gang chasing after a woman in the market. uh, And they end up chopping her up with a machete and leaving her in the market in pieces. And she sees that, and, and the local police um, come to ask around to see if she's see, seen anything, and she tells them that she did witness something. Uh, and very shortly after that, she starts receiving death threats from that gang um, for having spoken to the police. So she feels the need to flee. She has a boyfriend in the United States already who's who encourages her to come. So she crosses the border, she swims across the Rio Grande, and then she... Uh, Her boyfriend helps her get a flight to Utah, and she starts building a life here. Uh, The first thing she does is claim asylum. Like you said, we've been talking a lot about that. So she was, again— this is a very legitimate asylum claim. If you've got a gang coming after you, I think that's high on the legitimacy scale of, I'm here to seek asylum. Absolutely. She says she feared for her life. She didn't feel like she had any other option. You know, again, she was alone. She didn't have family. She didn't have parents. Um, So she, she comes to Utah. She gets a lawyer. She claims asylum. And uh, through a series of basically misunderstandings, her lawyer doesn't alert her about the court hearing. She misses it, and she's deported in absentia. And she actually never hears about that. She doesn't know she about doesn't that. Know. She doesn't know that she's been deported in absentia. She knows she has a lawyer. She hasn't heard from her lawyer. She assumes that everything's okay. Um, and she starts to build a life. Um, mm-hmm. And she does. And over the next 10 years, she establishes herself in Utah. She uh, goes from being a maid to getting a job as a cook at a Burger King to being promoted to the manager of a McDonald's. She has four children in the United States, all of whom are U.S. citizens because right. they're born here. Um, and they kind of build a, a life very much like, um, you know, the life of any the other Utah. Dr- it's the American, it's the American dream, dream, right? Dream, there. Right. And she really starts to think about her future and the more than her future really it's the future of her children who right. are born here and who are starting to do very well in school and um and you know she starts to think about college and you know her 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 10 year old daughter becoming a pediatrician because she really wants to be one and she starts to have those dreams and she feels more and more like that's a possibility right and then her life completely changes she receives a deportation order um, and this was around actually during Obama's presidency when Obama had stepped up deportations and she receives a deportation order. She's totally shocked by it. She, again, didn't even know she'd been deported 10 years before. So she goes to the immigration office. She says, what is this? And they say, you're being deported. You should have brought your suitcases to the immigration office. And she's she's totally shocked, but um, they don't deport her immediately. She checks in with immigration frequently. Um, and at this time under Obama, there was a, a focus on 
on um, deporting people who had committed crimes and, mm-hmm. a, and a prioritization of right. criminals. And then there was a deprioritization of um, people who hadn't committed crimes while in the United States, as well as mothers of U.S. citizen children. So she was in a really good place not to be deported. And though she was worried about it, she wasn't worried in such an active way. She thought, you know, this isn't... This will get sorted out. This will get sorted out. I've never committed a crime here. You know, I'm I'm not going to get deported. I have kids to take care of here. They have a right to be in in the United States. And then... Trump comes into office, and that's really when when things shift for her. Right. So, so the the emphasis from the Trump administration uh, shifts in terms of who's being deported, and kind of an acceleration there. Uh, and so, so what played out next? So basically, just like you said, um, President Trump had a different approach to immigration enforcement, and that was really um, kind of a deprioritization of who would be deported, meaning everyone was everyone considered was a list. priority, <laughs> right? And even if you had sort of what would be before have been considered a humanitarian sort of exemption, like you have four U.S. citizen right. children. That was no longer considered sort of enough to get you exempt. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that Trump did sort of right away was um, in an effort to drive up deportations, focus on people who already had deportations out and who didn't even require like a a court hearing to deport them. They were already deported. You could just sort of say, you could just step it up and and get them out. Right. Um, So she fell under that category. She'd had this hanging over her head for a year or for for 10 years. Sorry. And so she was she was sort of first on the list. Um, And it happened very quickly after he took office in 2016. Uh, she ended up, you know, really fighting the deportation. There were protests here in Utah for her cause. She got a lawyer, um, but ultimately none of those efforts were successful. And she was deported uh, with her um, kids on Christmas Day of 2017. That's one year ago. Wow. So so here you have a, a mom and four children raging from three to 10? 12, yeah. To 12, three mm-hmm. to 12. Uh, and suddenly they are sent back to Guatemala on Christmas Day 2017. Absolutely. And, and you know, to clarify here, again, her kids are U.S. citizens. So right. they have a right to be in the they- United States. And she was faced with a really challenging decision because what she had to decide was, is it more important for my kids to stay in the United States, have access to educational opportunities, have, you know, access to the life that they're they have a right to because they're they're citizens, or is it more important that they stay with their mother? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she she ultimately felt that you know she talked to her immigration um, officer in one of the in one of the final meetings she had with him and he said you know it's better for you to leave your kids here the American government will take care of them and she said to him she said you know the American government didn't give birth to my kids I gave birth to my kids and uh, she was an orphan she she, she never yeah. had a mother wow. she she knew that I mean she couldn't even imagine it would, it was her lifelong dream to have children of her own have a family of her own she couldn't imagine leaving her kids motherless in the United States and and giving them the same fate she'd had. It was such a difficult choice. Ultimately, she felt that the most important thing was that they had their mother. Yeah. Um, even if life was hard and she she knew that it would be uh, back in the place that she'd fled 14 years ago. Right. And so she ultimately decides that she's going to take them with her to Guatemala. And that's when, you know, they they go to the airport, they, they get to they're deported on Christmas yeah. Day. So, so let's pick it up now. So she's so she's now in Guatemala. Right. Uh, you fly down there. <laughs> Absolutely. So, find your fixer. <laughs> find the security person. Uh, and so, what was what was the experience like for you seeing her back in Guatemala? Obviously, the the children had to be a little uprooted in terms of English Spanish had to be a, an interesting dilemma uh, for for kids of that age. And and again, just connection to school and routines and so on. 
so as you got down there and had a chance to, to visit with Maria, uh, what was that conversation like? Absolutely. So it was a really um, powerful experience to be there. Um, uh, so different than the life that she'd had here and that, you know, mm. I'm used to here. Um, and, you know, to, to be clear, so what we were, the, the reason that we did this trip and the reason that we chose the time we went was that, you know, I just explained that Maria had a very difficult choice to make uh, to keep her kids with her. Um, ultimately, we went down there for for Maria's sort of second choice. She was mm-hmm. making another difficult decision. And that decision was whether or not she should keep her kids in Guatemala, really whether or not the choice she'd originally made was the right choice. Um, and so we were there to sort of see her grapple with that. And what she was dealing with really was uh, an experience that she she actually wasn't prepared for when she went. She thought it would be hard, but she wasn't expecting it to be as hard. She was, you know, living in a one-room cement hut uh, in a small, small village uh, in a very, you know, dangerous part of Guatemala right on the border with El Salvador that uh, was, you know, in close proximity to, to the border where there was a lot of drug trafficking related issues, a lot of gang-related issues. You know, most of the kids in the town where she was living don't graduate sixth grade. Wow. Um, most of them don't even get that far. Mm. Um, you know, the school is sort of a one big, one big long building, multiple classes are sharing one room. Um, you know, her two kids uh, who were very successful here in Utah schools were, you know, years behind their, you know, they were working on algebra here, there, they were doing addition and subtraction. They were, they were very, we went to school with them. They were really frustrated at how behind they were. But, you know, more than just, you know, educational, lack of educational opportunity, um, you know, most kids there don't end up, you know, there's a lot of kids who end up getting involved in gang violence and in sort of local gangs, drug trafficking. But those that don't end up being farmers, they make $5 a day sort of in the cornfields. That's sort of what the future looks like. Women don't have any work. Maria wasn't able to work at all after being the manager of a McDonald's here. She goes back and there's there's literally no work for women. She cannot make any income. And so because of that, there's also just not any food on the table. Um, There was a big freeze that year. All of the income comes from, you know, working in the cornfields, eating from the cornfields. There's no corn this year. So there's just no food on the table. They're eating, you know, one tortilla and a small bowl of beans. And that's what they're eating. And, the, you know, Patrick, the older kid, he's 12. He loses 25 pounds in a matter of months. That's mm. a lot for a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. And Maria really begins to worry because her kids are not eating enough. They don't have enough money to afford um, treatment for the old Patrick's asthma. There's just a such a lack of resources that she begins to fear just on an immediate level that she actually just can't provide for these children um so so then she's so then she's back to the dilemma of what do i do do i keep my family together or do i send my children who are u.s citizens back to the united states i mean i I can't imagine that as a mother uh and everything she's gone through already uh so what what was the process there and and where do things stand? Right. So we sort of went towards the end of this choice, but it's something that she'd been um, grappling with really since she arrived and realized that life was a lot harder than she expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, I mean, this is a woman who, in my experience with her, just put her family above everything. And right. that seemed like the most important thing to her. Um, in her. You know, it's important to all of us, but I think given her history, it was just... Um, so important to her that she was able to see her kids grow up uh, and to be there for them. And so, 
she ultimately, you know, as the months goes by, as the months go by, she realizes, you know, this is increasingly more untenable. Patrick, her older son, actually approaches her and says, you know, mom, I see you're struggling. You know, one day I'm going to go back to the United States. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to help you. And she says, well, you know, why not right now? If you're if you're able to go and study and make a life, you know, who am I to hold you back just because I love you? And she ultimately has to choose between, you know, what she says, you know, I have to give you your wings, even if it breaks my heart, because even if I love you, I can't let my love for you actually stop you from doing what's best for you. And maybe maybe a mother's duty, she realizes, isn't always to keep her kids as close as possible. Maybe sometimes it's to give her kids the best chance at at a future. And so ultimately, she makes that decision. Uh, She actually was offered the opportunity before she was deported. Um, There's two public school teachers here uh, who know each other, who are friends, who both uh, were watching as uh, this was happening. It was on the local news that she was being deported. And they were former art teachers of Patrick and Sarah E., who are her Mm. two older kids. And they had offered before she was deported, if if Maria wanted, that they would actually take the kids in. And Maria had decided, you know, no, I'm going to keep the family together. But as she's in Guatemala living this difficult life, she realizes maybe I should maybe I should consider taking them up on that offer. Maybe that's the best thing. So she ends up reaching back out to them. They're still willing to take the older two kids. And she decides, I'm going to do it. I'm going to send them back. So we went down there to to watch her say goodbye and mm. to be with her as she was sort of letting them go in the final days. Yeah. Wow. Uh, again, tale of, of two families. Uh, now, now she's still in Guatemala with the two younger children. Mm-hmm. Her two older children are, are here in, in Utah, uh, living in, in different homes. So they're not together uh, as siblings. So they're kind of in that semi-orphan category, being well taken care of, for sure, by, uh, by those that offered. But that dynamics has just got to be the mental gymnastics of a mother uh, wondering about her children who are in another country and in other homes uh, has has to be exhausting. I, I think so, for sure. And, uh, you know, we've kept in touch a- after I've gotten back and she'll often message me and, and say, you know, that she's feeling really sad and she really misses them. And, and it's it's the holiday season. Uh, you know, they were deported on Christmas Day and now it's about to be Christmas again. And this is the time when we normally think about being together with family. Uh, and that's not possible for this family. Um a year ago, they were together. Um, you know, even a few months ago, they were they were together in this difficult situation. But now they're not. Um, and I think you know, for both, I think Maria thinks about it as you know, sort of. I've asked her about her dreams, about her future, and I think mm-hmm. she's a woman who was always very ambitious, who overcame a lot of hardship and still uh, was able to be successful, to have a career. Um, but I think she thinks sort of that she's come to the end of the road with her dreams. That there's really mm-hmm. not a future for her in Guatemala. There's no work. There's no life. There's no nothing to look forward to, nothing to work for. And so she says, you know, I'm really living for my children. I'm living through my children and their dreams. And their dreams are what will make me happy and proud. But for her children, you know, it's hard to know. They're 10 and 12. Mm-hmm. That's a very pivotal, trans- transformative, yeah. important time in a, in a person's life. They're having to really, I think, think and feel and act like adults. You know, they in Guatemala, there's this sense that, you know, okay, as soon as I'm old enough, I'm going to cross the border, I'm going to provide for my family. That really, instead of parents providing for their children, there's a cultural attitude that children provide for their parents as soon as they're able. And so they have this sort of, in the airport we were talking and, um, you know, Patrick said to his mom, you know, as, you know or sorry, 
said to her mom, you know, as soon as I get there, I'm going to start baking cakes and I'm going to start selling those cakes and then I'm going to send you the money. You know, because she's 10 years old. She can't do anything to make money here, right? <laughs> but she's already thinking, I'm going to bake these cakes. I'm going to make money. I'm going to send them to my mm-hmm. mom. And so I think they're they're very much in this sort of adult frame of mind. I'm going to be here. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to become a doctor and I'm going to, you know, try to help my mom. But they're also kids who grew up right. in Utah and who like, are you know, like call, playing Call of Duty and, and <laughs> you know, reading books, right? So they're yeah. also missing their mom and they're missing their mom on Christmas and who knows kind of what the future looks like for them as they adjust to a life living in a house that's unfamiliar with, you know, kind of new parents who they don't know and who don't know them, right? They're not living with relatives. They're living with very generous public school teachers. So it's difficult to know what kind of impact that'll have on them and ultimately what we'll see in terms of this deportation rippling out and affecting their lives. Wonderful. Jillian, we appreciate you walking us through this story, and this is one of, of countless stories. Uh, I think often in these kinds of debates, we, we often move them into sweeping generalities, um, but it's important for us to, to realize these are real people, real families, real children uh, that are impacted here. Therefore, what? Uh, as, as we transition to our, our therefore what for the day, we always have to look at what's the takeaway? What do, what do we do with this? Uh, you, you raised uh, the, the idea of Christmas and family and being together. Uh, and as our favorite member of the Jewish community here at the Deseret <laughs> News, uh, you'll, you'll indulge us with a, a little Christmas component to the story. And, and that is in the New Testament. It, it says that as Mary and Joseph were entering the city, uh, that there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, didn't say there was no room in the inn. I think if they'd had money or status or power, they would have found a room. Uh, and I think a lot of these asylum seekers are sort of in that same space. There's, there's room here for sure. And America is a compassionate place. Um, but we need to figure out how we make room for them uh, in in our inn here in the United States of America. So for the people who've been listening uh, to this podcast and this very compelling story and this this great article that I hope everybody goes and reads at DeseretNews.com, what's the what's the takeaway? What's the therefore what? What should we be thinking about? What should we be doing different uh, after the experience you've had in uh, understanding where Maria has been and where she is and what the future looks like for her and her kids? Uh, and and what should we be doing as citizens? Well, that's, of course, a very complicated and difficult question. But I think as you raised, to me, this story is really about family. And it's about the human impact of policies that, you know, might seem cut and dry or might seem very distant from maybe certain people who are listening to this right now. Maybe you think that this doesn't affect your life, but uh, this does have really very real impacts on, on human beings and on families. You know, this family, again, was here. They were together uh, and they were very much self-sufficient. And now they're torn apart. Um, you know, she's there. They're here. Uh, they don't know when they'll see each other again um, or what the future looks like. And I think we have to ask our, ourselves the question, is this a better outcome? It is enforcing the law in this way a better outcome in terms of a, a real family's life? And I think that we have to be thinking about those questions when we think about the policies that create this kind of issue. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important for us to recognize that that compassion and the rule of law are compatible principles. So often in these arguments, they are these binary choices. Uh, and I think we can have the laws and the right security at the border, and we, and we can have an entry and exit system. We can, we can do all of those things as a country. 
and we can have compassion. Uh, and this is one of those cases. Uh, I'll never forget uh, when Senator Lee was running for office, uh, there was actually right here in the KSL studios, there was a debate between Senator Lee and Bob Bennett. And it was just before the convention. And Senator Bennett knew he was not going to win. He knew it. And we were standing in the lobby, and it's always kind of that uncomfortable pre-debate <laughs> awkwardness. You're, you're 10 feet away from your opponent. And he, he motioned to Senator Lee and I. We went over, and, and uh, he kind of very fatherly uh, said, you know, it's, it's most likely that you're going to have to deal with some of these challenges. There was something on the news screen there uh, about an immigration issue. And, and then he went on to describe a situation very similar to Maria's. Uh, and he says that's, that's when you really have to understand what it means to be a statesman and what it really means to have a different kind of conversation. And I, one, I always admired that about Bob Bennett, that he, he saw past all of the politics of it and said, you know, th this is a challenge you're going to have to face. Do it with compassion. Uh, so as a, as a final thought, Jillian, share with us kind of your personal, what's your personal therefore what? This was a big, this was a big story. This was a huge ever. I know you've been working on this for a long mm -hmm. time and, and it's a meaningful one. It's an important story. It's the kind of in-depth story that really represents the best of the Deseret News. But give me your personal take. What, what, what have, what's changed about you uh, as a result of doing this story? Great question. I think for me, what I learned just as a journalist is that it's so important for journalists to be on the ground covering these issues. Um, I mean, again, right, just like we talked about in the beginning, that this took a, a significant allocation of resources on the part of the newspaper, uh, and it took a certain amount of risk to actually go there and hire the person who, who would kind of watch over us and make those decisions. We could have easily said, oh, this is, you know, this is too much. We'll focus on something easier or we'll stay in the office and we'll, you know, make calls instead of instead of going out there. And I think, like you were saying, this is an issue that affects human beings. And where we go very wrong with this immigration debate is when we try to take the humans out of it. We have to keep that front and center in order to understand what's really at stake here. Regardless of your view, this is affecting human beings of all kinds, thousands of them. Um, and we have to, as journalists and as the public, we have to be willing to grapple with the human cost of policy decisions if we're going to stand behind them. Jillian Friedman from the Deseret News, thanks so much for being with us thanks today. Thanks so much, Boyd. Remember, you can read Jillian's full article at DeseretNews.com. Great insight, great in-depth reporting from Jillian Friedman from the Deseret News. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on Deseret News com slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What.